Good day, everyone, and welcome to another episode of What's Really Happening. I'm Dr. Tad Schnaufer, the Strategy and Research Manager here at the Global National Security Institute at the University of South Florida. As always, we're joined by GNSI's Executive Director, retired U.S. Marine Corps General Frank McKenzie, as we explore global and national security issues. What's Really Happening will take you behind the scenes and open the door to the knowledge, experience, and the insights of a senior leader who's commanded at the highest levels of the military, including commanding U.S. Central Command. After recent attacks by Iranian-backed militia groups on a U.S. military base in Jordan that killed three U.S. service members and injured over 40 others, the U.S. has made retaliatory strikes in the region and are looking for other ways to deter Iran from further supporting such attacks. All right, welcome back, General. With the, the ideas of these recent attacks and retaliatory attacks by the U.S. Uh, in the Middle East, well, first, let's talk about what's Iran's strategy for the region. Well, Ted, first of all, good to be with you here today. Mm -hmm. Look forward yes, to this discussion on Iran. And Iran's strategy in the region has been remarkably consistent for, for many years, and it's a very simple strategy. There are three parts to it. The first and most important part is to preserve the theocratic regime in Iran. Mm -hmm. The current leadership is a revolutionary leadership. It came into effect in the late 1970s, and with all revolutionary regimes, you want to export the revolution, but in order to export the revolution, your view of the world, theocratic mm -hmm. as it is, you have to protect the home base. The home base is Iran. Sure. So that's absolutely the number one priority for Iranian strategy, and we should remember that. The second and third priorities interchange, but within this, they're constant. We'll say number two is the destruction of the state of Israel. Mm -hmm. That's been a constant theme of Iran. They've worked toward that end for many years. There's no sign they're going to stop doing that. The number three component of Iranian strategy is to eject the United States from the region. They want us out, and our Western allies too, but principally us, because they don't see that anyone else can remain unless the United States remains. Sure. And they see the primary battleground for that being Iraq and Syria. Okay. So those are the three components of Iranian strategy, and it's important, Ted, also to note that this strategy was operative before the war in Gaza. Mm -hmm. It's operative now during the war in Gaza and will be operative after the war in Gaza ends. So the war in Gaza has not brought anything particularly new in Iranian thinking. Uh, it's just that they welcome it, they support it, sure. like Hamas. They value the destruction of the state of Israel. But the, the strategic imperatives of Iran override and are more important than those considerations. When it seems like those, all three of those strategic uh, aims of Iran are supported by these attacks across the region, increasing pressure on Israelis, on the U.S., and also uh, being able to fight via proxy where they don't even have to be directly involved. Well, Tad, they are, they are related, but they're different. Mm -hmm. And we need to remember that the Iranian campaign against our continued presence in Iraq at the invitation of the government of Iraq and our presence in Syria, which is there to complete the destruction of ISIS and to prevent its resurgence, that, that campaign was active before the war in Gaza, right. and it will continue regardless of what happens in Gaza. Now, it may be convenient for the Iranians to link that to what's going on in Gaza, but actually it's a very different campaign with very different objectives. Well, and do these attacks then, are, is it going to end up being more of a tit-for-tat uh, approach where the U.S. retaliates when attacked, or is there a broader deterrent scheme to keep Iran uh, and these three strategies at bay? Sure. So going into the, the, the tragic attack on Tower 22, mm -hmm. I think over the previous few months, several months, Iran had attacked us about 160 times, right. depending how you want to count it. Uh, and that flows from an Iranian belief that they can induce pressure on us that will cause us to leave the region and yet stay below a red line level that would invite a massive U.S. response. And here's the truth of the matter. They have never doubted our capabilities. 
They know that if they get into a toe-to-toe fight with the United States, they're going to lose that fight. Instead, they doubt our will, our ability to see things through, and our ability to fight and stay when we're under pressure. So what they try to do with these attacks, particularly in Iraq and Syria, although not solely limited to there, is to induce us to say, well, the game's too much, we're not going to stay. And so that's the, re- that's the reason they've continued these attacks. So our response has been largely tit for tat until the, the most recent strikes that mm-hmm. occurred after the, our, our soldiers died up at Tower 22, where now we see the beginnings of what appears to be a consistent campaign against um, proxy forces in Iraq and Syria. Now, this campaign, I would argue, is too limited because we have explicitly taken the moral author of these attacks off the table. We've said publicly that it is not our intention to strike targets in Iran. Mm -hmm. Now, Ted, I don't advocate striking targets in Iran, but I do believe the Iranians should feel there's a risk we could strike targets in Iran. What we Mm -hmm. do by limiting ourselves is reduce pressure on them. The whole idea of our response is to create in the mind of the opponent uh, the Iranians and their proxies that the goal they're they're pursuing is not worth the pain it's going to cause them. So now we're inflicting some level of pain on proxy forces in Iraq and in Syria. We're not inflicting any pain at all on Iran. Right, and it's actually, uh, I remember an interview with uh, Richard Nixon where he talked about the Eisenhower administration, how Eisenhower said it's very important not to tell the enemy what you're not going to do as much as what you're going to do. You don't want to take anything off the table in their mindset for planning. That's a great point, Ted. And not only have we done so by taking Iran targets explicitly off the table, a constant discussion of the fear of escalation mm-hmm. has also limited the uh, usefulness of these attacks. Sure. Look, the fact of the matter is, Ted, if, if preventing escalation is our primary goal, we should leave. We can do. We can prevent escalation by getting out, mm-hmm. getting out of Iraq and getting out of Syria. Then there'd be no danger of escalation. Clearly, preventing escalation is not our highest priority. Nonetheless, we continue to refer to it in a way that I think is frankly counterproductive. We don't want to escalate unnecessarily. You may have to escalate, though, in order to attempt to reestablish deterrence or to impose pain on your adversary. Right. And to talk about escalation as if it is the greatest enemy is, I think, a, uh, is a problem. Right. Well, can that lead to a strategy of escalate to de-escalate, as we've talked about with the Russians and other actors? It could, although Iran knows and understands if they begin an escalatory spiral with the United States, mm-hmm. ultimately they will lose. We used to say when I was in command at Central Command that Iran may own the early steps on the escalation ladder. We own the last steps on the escalation <laughs> ladder. They know that, too. This is not... They're very, they're, very, uh, they're very calm and calculating when they look at what they're doing. And they understand what the Russians would call the correlation of forces. Mm-hmm. They understand what we have in the theater, what we could bring into the theater, and how we might hurt them should we choose to do so. So then what message does the U.S. need to send to effectively deter Iran from furthering these attacks or continuing to support these attacks? What we need to do is we need to convince Iran that if they continue on this program of, of attacking us in, in Iraq and in Syria and in other places as well, then the possibility is high that they may pay a very steep price themselves. And here's a, here's a nuance to this. Around 2020, the Iranians developed a new way for their forces in Iraq and Syria to plot, plan, and execute their attacks. They no longer had to ask Iran for permission mm-hmm. to conduct each attack. Instead, the Iranians said, look, we, we're okay with you attacking U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria below a, a, below a certain level. We don't know what that level is, but below a certain level, and you don't have to ask us for permission to do it. 
Right. So when the Iranians say, well, we didn't know about this attack or we didn't appro- approve of this attack, that may be technically correct. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, they trained, they equipped, and they gave the broad green light for these attacks to continue. So the Iranians think they sort of set themselves at, at one remove from consequences. We need to bring home the reality to Iran that they're not actually at one remove from consequences. Right. And unfortunately, saying we won't strike inside Iran kinetically uh, doesn't help advance that proposition. Right. Well, if these groups are operating semi-independently from, from uh, Iranian uh, influence, how does the U.S. deter across the board? So it has to deter each individual group to an extent, assuming that Iran, even if they wanted to, couldn't pull them back. First of all, it depends on whether or not you believe Iran can pull them back. Right. I'm of the opinion that Iran can pull them back. Right. And that's based on a long study of the issue. Mm-hmm. I also believe we can deter them to some degree by striking them inside Iraq and Syria. Mm-hmm. But even large-scale strikes, as we've seen over the past few days, is not in and of itself, absent pressure on Iran, probably going to produce the solution that we want. So what is the solution that we want sure. to have? The solution that we want is we want them to cease attacks. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to be able to stop everybody who wants to run up and fire an RPG-7 at a base. Right. But it can stop ballistic missile attacks. It can stop large, complex drone attacks. Mm-hmm. It can stop attacks like that. That is the goal that we should be seeking here. And I believe for that goal to be reached, we have to, A, as I've noted already, apply pressure to the groups themselves, but also apply pressure at the source. These, these groups don't magically bring these weapons into right. being in Iraq. They are built somewhere else. They're brought in. And that somewhere else, of course, is Iran. Mm-hmm. So there, it's a, it is a complex problem, but it's a problem that can be addressed. But we should not ro- rule out a significant fraction of the problem as we seek to solve it. Sure, sure. And, sir, obviously Iran has been faced with many sanctions over the years. What roles do those play in being able to help deter or mold the situation and, and stop these attacks? So I think sanctions have, a, have value, mm-hmm. but I think largely in the case of Iran, there have been too many leaks, too many uh, – mm-hmm. they've, they've leaked like a sieve. Yeah. Iran has been able to go other places and to do other things to get around the sanctions. So a sanctions re- regime, if you're going to apply it, has to be ruthlessly applied. And second, to be effective, a sanctions regime actually has to have broad international buy-in. And we have, been not, we have not been successful in gaining broad international buy-in from any of the sanctions that we've chosen to uh, put against Iran. So without that broad buy-in for the sanctions, is the only option or answer to this scenario a, a military answer? Well, I think it, you know the military element of power is one of several. Sure. I think we would prefer for that not to be the only answer. But I think diplomacy, in the case of Iran, without an iron fist behind it, is mm. frankly useless. Right. So is this like the Theodore Roosevelt uh, walk softly and carry a big stick approach to diplomacy here? It is. You, you want to measure what you say, mm-hmm. but you want to make c- certain that what you say is backed up by force, observable, demonstrable, capable, credible force. Absolutely. Absolutely. And as we look at the application of U.S. strikes following the, uh, the attack earlier this week, what what is evidence to the commanders uh, that these attacks are getting the desired results? So not just destroying equipment or personnel, but also seeing a uh, change in the actions of these groups as well as Iran. Well, Ted, I, you know, I don't know what CENTCOM's looking at now. Sure. I know in the past we would look at, first of all, we'd look at effects on the target. We have ways right. of assessing what did we strike? Did we avoid collateral damage? Did we avoid killing civilians unnecessarily? Did we get perhaps leadership? Did we get secondary explosions there from other ammunition being held there? So we look at all of those things, and we, then we listen to see what they're saying. But the most important thing is, and really the only thing that counts, the only thing that counts here in this whole calculus is, do the attacks on our bases stop? 
Right. And if the attacks on our bases stop, and I'm not saying they've got to go to absolute zero because I recognize that their command and control system is not perfect. But if the ballistic missile attacks stop, if the large complex drone attacks stop, if the large rocket attacks stop, then that's a sign that we're having success. And that really is the only measure that we should apply here. Right. Well, has there been a time in the past, sir, we've, we've seen deterrence actions by the U.S. in the Middle East uh, be effective against the I think deterrence plan? was reset to some degree. After the strike on Qasem Soleimani and their response at al-Assad, I think you saw a level of deterrence established. It wasn't waterproof and small strikes continued, but for a while the Iranians were back on their heels. They had lost a key a key piece on the chessboard, mm-hmm. and it took them a while to figure out how to replace him. And actually, I don't think they've replaced him to this date. I think Operation Praying Mantis, uh, a much earlier operation, where we went after the Iranian Navy uh, and sank a number of ships, that was actually a, re- helped reestablish deterrence. So there have been clear examples over prior years where we have chosen to apply military force and actually achieve deterrence. Right. And, but has there been some times where we've seen failure in deterrent operations where we, we wasn't strong enough or the message just get, didn't get received properly? There was a message sent, but they just didn't pick it up? Well, I think over the past few months where they've struck over 160 times at us and we've launched some very limited strikes mm-hmm. Uh, and there's been no apparent response to that, I think that would be an example of failed uh, measures to reestablish deterrence. Right. Is there, any, is there any parallels with that we can see from the Russian invasion of Ukraine where the U.S. is trying to deter it, but that action still takes place? Sure. So in, the, in, in February of 2022, looked like President Putin was going to invade Ukraine. We felt that was a terrible decision for him. We messaged him to that effect. Uh, we were not able to get that message across, despite, I think, very innovative and artful uses of intelligence and very effective messaging in the information space by the United States. The problem was Vladimir Putin had seen what had happened in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. and he drew his own conclusions about that. So he was not amenable to the messaging that we were providing because, to him at least, it had no credibility. Now, that's probably he would probably like to revisit that decision now, <laughs> I, I, would, I would hope. We were unable to establish deterrence uh, in advance of his attack against Ukraine because, in, our, in his view, we simply lacked credibility. He did not believe right. we would actually stand and support Ukraine, that we would be able to assemble uh, you know, not only the North Atlantic Treaty Organization but other mm-hmm. like-minded nations to stand against him. He didn't believe it. Now he's learned that he was that was an error of judgment. Right. Right. Although he had evidence in 2014 with the annexation of Crimea that a quick act, he might be able to get away with it. Exactly. So, so these, these examples accrue in the mind of the potential aggressor. Right. And you have to operate against it with a clear message. And, you know, look, look Tad, classic deterrence theory is mm. sort of a two-part problem. The first is you say we're going to deter you by denial. Mm-hmm. You are not strong enough to attain your goal. Look at us, our posture here. Right. The second, and usually the kind that we apply, is de- uh, deterrence by punishment. If you attempt to achieve this goal, we will punish you to such a degree that it will, it will ultimately not be worth achieving and holding on to because the cost to you will be so great. Those are the two models, and you couple it again with, as I've noted before, the capability will argument. Right. What's your capability? What's his assessment of your will? All of those must come together if you're going to achieve deterrence. Well, and it seems like in the case of Putin and in Iran, the, I, the question of will is the, the big one on the table. The U.S. obviously has the capabilities. It's the question of the will to apply those in, in many of these cases. Dad, it's always a question of will, particularly mm-hmm. when people look at the United States. And I might add, people have often made miscalculations about the will of the United States sure. and come to regret that decision later. <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. And as we go back to looking at Iran and we're talking about will and the, the negotiating table or being able to deter, 
Uh, the Iranian nuclear program has always been under scrutiny and obviously sanction. Why has Iran not just developed a nuclear weapon as rapidly as possible to help them deter U.S. actions against their proxies or possibly themselves? Or is there something else going on? Well, Chad, I have a little different view of this than most people. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe the Iranians don't necessarily want to own a nuclear weapon right now. Mm -hmm. They want to be able to possess a nuclear weapon very quickly. Uh, and they okay. want to be right at the boundary because they see that discussions about crossing the boundary produce an effect on us, perhaps mm -hmm. sanctions relief, perhaps sanctions relief from the Europeans. So they like being right there. They like the idea of being able to have a nuclear weapon. But I'm not sure that they want a nuclear weapon, at least not yet. And the other problem Iran has, and many people don't realize this, let's say they push across and gain the fissile material to produce a weapon, mm -hmm. which they could do in a matter of weeks if they chose to do so. Then they would have a nuclear test device, perhaps, a mm -hmm. large, unwieldy device that would need to be weaponized, made into something that's transportable and deployable. They'd have to find a way to actually move it to a target. Could be on an airplane, could be on a missile. Those take a while to design and build. Now, they could get it there by other ways, but those are not predictable, safe ways to get it to its target. Right. So they now they're in what we would call the valley of death. They've <laughs> said they're going to possess a nuclear weapon, yet for maybe a year and a year and a half, they have no way to actively deliver it. That would be a very dangerous time for Iran. I would say instead, right now, the Iranian crown jewels are their ballistic missiles, mm -hmm. their drones, and their land attack cruise missiles, which today give them the capability to gain overmatch against their neighbors across much of the region. Right, but with uh, so almost not by not acquiring a nuclear weapon, it actually gives them more to negotiate on because they can always negotiate down the, to say, you know, oh, we won't, we'll allow inspectors in. So, Ted, that's my view. Right. But there are other views, and those oh, sure. views yeah. may be correct and I may mm -hmm. be wrong. But I think uh, Iran yeah. has not made a decision to possess a nuclear weapon. Uh, but they have made a decision to threaten its possession. Sure. And they want to be close to developing one should they choose to do so. And they've certainly, yeah, they've definitely used that <coughs> in the past. And looking at the uh, attacks around the region, um, is there, from, the, uh, from your observations on Iran's past strategy, wouldn't the attacks also possibly just bring the U.S. more involvement in, into the Middle East uh, instead, of, instead, of, instead of the pressure pushing them out actually pulls them in? So I think Iran has to make that calculation. As they look at striking the United States, uh, pushing their proxies down in uh, the Bab el-Mendeb, the uh -huh. Houthis to close the Bab el-Mendeb, they have to weigh, can they overstep, and will it bring massive U.S. reinforcements back in the region? That's where I think you get to the fine calculation that it's the heart of Iranian policy. Mm. How much can you do to push the United States out before you bring the United States in massively? That They have not always excelled at that calculation. On the other hand, we have not excelled at messaging to them what those red lines might be. Fascinating, fascinating uh, idea of the spectrum of being able to deter, but also where that flips over to actually uh, goes from the deterring or pushing out the U.S. by actually pulling, pulling more in, in a coalition, as a matter of fact, as well. Chad, when, when I was at Central Command, we called it contested deterrence, mm -hmm. an idea where you're going to be able to deter some aspects of state-on-state -state war at the higher end, but you're going to have to live with smaller breaches of what we would call deterrence. I think it's just the nature of the region. It's an extraordinarily complex region with extraordinarily complex relationships. Yeah, and unfortunately operating in the instability of the region as well, where you don't have firm state governments all over the place. You just have to work with uh, rogue groups acting uh, without uh, state state authorization. So looking at these attacks, the U.S. retaliatory attacks, what's the future look for the region in, in the near term, sir? So I think it remains to be seen if our campaign is going to have a success in stopping these attacks on our forces in Iraq and Syria. 
I've mentioned to you some of the things that concern me about the way we've crafted this response, but it's still fairly early, and we may have success. Uh, and so I'll follow that with great interest as we go forward. But remember, the acid test will be very simple. Did the attacks stop or did the attacks not stop? You can ignore everything else. You need to look at actual uh, functional results. I think in the Strait of uh, the Bab el-Mendeb, it's a little more interesting because mm -hmm. there the Houthis are, I think, a little more radical than most of the other groups that are, that are fighting. They, 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 like many other groups, are sworn to destroy Israel. They can't get to Israel effectively to, mm -hmm. to strike them. A combination of their inability to craft a missile that will get there effectively and the excellence of Israeli defenses has sort of put Israel off the table. So what they can do is operate against the Bab el-Mendeb and attack civilian shipping there. And, of course, if you control the Bab el-Mendeb, you control the Suez Canal. Right. And we have said in our national security strategy that a free passage to the Bab el-Mendeb is, in fact, a strategic priority. So we're in a tough spot now. We have undertaken to reopen the Bab el-Mandeb to civilian shipping. That operation continues as well. Mm -hmm. I believe that's an attainable objective. We've got to do a couple of things to do that, though. We have to either completely destroy the Houthi inventory of missiles, mm -hmm. drones, uh, and radar sites and intelligence collection stations. That's possible. Or you have to convince them that they don't want to continue down that path because of the possible loss of all those. At the same time, the Houthis don't, again, manufacture these weapons out of whole cloth sure. in Yemen. <laughs> they come to them from Iran. Right. We need to stop that conduit. And mm -hmm. the tragic loss of two SEALs just a few days ago talks about the danger of doing that. But it can be done. It requires a more aggressive maritime surveillance network. It actually involves several, many nations working to prevent the, 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 those weapons from getting there, either, uh, either by sea or through Oman. And we should talk to our friends, the Omanis, about ceasing the uh, movement of these weapons through Oman into Yemen. Are there other regional actors that would be able to help deter and influence uh, the actions, whether it's the Houthis or also back in Iraq and Syria? Well, I think we seek the, the, you know, the partnership of all our friends in the region, mm -hmm. UAE, Saudi Arabia, uh, Bahrain. Mm -hmm. uh, all, we think, Qatar, I think we, we seek to work with all of them as we craft a response against Iran and as we also seek to remind the Houthis that this is a path that will ultimately not be good for them if they continue down it. And whether we're talking about the Houthis or the Iranian-backed militia groups in Syria, what's the primary motivation for them? Is it simply ideological, or is it, is it something else? So for the Houthis, I believe it is primarily ideological. Mm -hmm. We should believe them when they say our highest objective is the destruction of the state of Israel and the United States. Mm -hmm. We should yeah. take them at their word. They actually mean that. Right. Um, I think in, in Iraq and Syria... Certainly, ejecting the United States from the region is core to their belief, um, and the, you know they're they're funded by Iran, so they're going to espouse the, the Shia view of the world, uh, and they're going to be active in Iran. Remember, they they actually assisted in the ejection of ISIS from Iran in 2014 forward, and the fact they've remained after ISIS was ejected just tells you this is going to be a long-term problem in Iraq, and we need to recognize that. Because when you see groups with those types of motivations, it becomes much harder to deter them because it's not money or power necessarily they're seeking. They're seeking to change or cause, cause pain. You're right. And for some of these things, you've got to change the conditions that gave birth to their rise. Right. Absolutely, sir. Well, any other comments on the uh, overall situation in the Middle East in deterring Iran? Ted, it remains very complex, very difficult. Uh, I'm glad to see that we're finally responding to these continued attacks on us. Mm -hmm. We need to have the heart and the courage to stay with it. Well, we hope to see no more attacks on, on U.S. Uh, troops throughout the region. So thanks, yeah, sir. Yeah, that's what to look for. <laughs> we'll be paying attention. Thank you, sir. Thanks very much.
And that's going to wrap up this episode of What's Really Happening, a fascinating discussion on deterring Iran with retired Marine Corps General Frank McKenzie, current executive director of GNSI. I'm Dr. Tad Schnaufer with the Global National Security Institute here at the University of South Florida, and we thank you for joining us today, and we look forward to next time when we find out what's really happening.